Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. This is Bob Hutchins talking about all things human, human flourishing, restorative, media, culture, etc. Today, I have a perfect fit for my show. His name is CJ Cassiato. And he has written a book that's coming out. By the time you listen to this, probably just hit the shelves on Amazon or in your local Barnes & Noble. The Forgotten Art of Being Ordinary, a Human Manifesto in the Age of the Metaverse. And it's coming out in September the 12th, 2023. So depending on when you are listening to this podcast, I encourage you to go out and pick it up. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online, in person, wherever you can get it. CJ is a writer. He's a media producer and part-time puppeteer. And we'll talk more about that. <laughs> he led a message and production studio called Reculture and an award-winning kids media project called Ringbeller. He's had the privilege of traveling the world, speaking to creative professionals at venues like Creative Mornings, TEDx, and Story. He's also the author of another book called Get Weird, Discover the Surprising Secret to Making a Difference. CJ, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. So you birthed another book. How's that process been before we get into the meat of it? What, what has that been like for you the past year or two years? It's been great. It's funny writing a book about current events and technology and media because it's always changing. And so traditional publishing, as you know, is sort of this this really wonderful but old school method where things take about two years. Even if you're writing something over the course of six months, it's not until about a year and a half or two years later that it hits the proverbial shelf. And so one of the things that I kept on having to do with the publisher is sort of go back and go, no, no, wait, 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 something changed. Something changed drastically in culture by the time I, you know, wrote that last draft. And luckily they were, they were pretty, you know, helpful and, and accommodating. But I tried to, to put as many sort of qualifiers in this book as possible to go, hey, look, things are going to change. They're going to change even more, but hopefully we can have a conversation about what isn't changing. And that's what it means uh, to be a human living and breathing on this planet. That's awesome. Well, I know you're a big fan uh, of Marshall McLuhan, which is one of my uh, all-time heroes. And we're both friends with Andrew McLuhan, who wrote the introduction uh, to your book. So I think the introduction that he wrote is is worth the price of the book alone, personally. But Absolutely. I, but I, but I want to jump into some of those 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 things in the book that you wrote about as it regards to this media, what I call a, a media ecology perspective. But there there was a quote, and it's one of the first lines of your book once we get past into chapter one. And I want to read it because I think it sets the stage for what we want to talk about over the next hour. And you you write this, a metaverse without reverence for the universe is a magic trick. A regression to a dark age marked by spells, impulse, and human sacrifice. Artificial intelligence without reverence for organic intelligence is a cheap popcorn movie with the same damn ending we've seen over and over again. Listen to the prophets, the poets, and the sci-fi storytellers. You are not a brand. You are an ordinary human. So am I. Just what does that mean exactly? For one thing, it means we're not alone. Second, it means we have a responsibility to do something about it. I absolutely love that. Talk more about that. And where does this come from? What's the source of this? Yeah, it comes from my own personal struggle with living in the 21st century and trying to live out my calling as an artist and as a writer and as somebody who makes things and figuring out how to do that in a culture and in an ecosystem that's largely driven by algorithms and celebrity influencer culture and really starting, sort of trying to parse out, you know, what is, is real and what is good, what is true, what is beautiful and, you know, what's just sort of an illusion. And that's been 
that's been a journey that I've been on. And, and really what it comes down to is the realization that we are so much more than sort of these projections that we put out on, you know, through pixels and, and, and through glass. I was talking to a researcher friend of mine who goes around and speaks at all of these different corporate gatherings talking about millennial and Gen X and boomer generational workforce stuff. She's really, really good at it. And she was saying, CJ, I have spoken to so many, she was talking about Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids, so many kids right now. And every single one of them believe that in addition to being an ordinary human, they have to be a brand as well. Mm. And that was the impetus to write this book to say, you are not a brand first and foremost, you are a human, you are somebody who is birthed into, you know, this, this place. And, and we need to get back to a point where that, it, it almost sounds cliche, but, but that, that baseline is enough. And obviously we go and we try and do great things and we try to build the future, you know, together, but we don't have sort of this baseline understanding that who we are and what we come with pre-installed is everything we need to experience joy and happiness and sustainability as a human race. We're not setting the future up for any sort of success in a world that's only going to become more synthetic, more artificial, more digital. Yeah. As I read your book and as I've kind of watched you from a distance and and we've crossed paths from time to time, you're not a person who is anti-technology. And that's where, you know, for me and my work and the things that I write about, speak about, consult with, I try to tell people I'm not anti-tech. As a matter of fact, I'm pro-tech, but I'm more pro-human. And when we prioritize human flourishing, I believe, if you were to rank them and, and you measure everything through that lens, technology can get very useful. It can get very exciting and transformational. But when we put the innovation, the technology on before the human flourishing, that's when we get it all mixed up. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's sort of pointless to be, you know, a Luddite. I remember, you know, researching the first industrial revolution in America and you had these, these artists and craftsmen who were literally, you know, taking hammers to these machines going, that will fix it. And if we're not careful, we can sort of be those characters as well. There's a, a, a chapter in the book where I think it starts off saying, you know, I, I don't want to be a, a guy that's like, get off my lawn 21st century. <laughs> but I do think that we, and, and people have gone before us and, and said this so much more eloquently than, than, you know, you and I both can like Marshall. We need to not be asleep at the wheel and really ask the right questions when it comes to the technology that we are in charge of, that we are building so that it doesn't control us. We have authority and agency over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You alluded to it earlier and, it, and it's kind of how you lead out in your new book. Could you elaborate on the tensions between branding and true belonging and how can we navigate that? Because here's the the struggle that I always find in the current, and I think it's it's part of the platform, right? It's again, the old Marshall McLuhan, you know, the media is the message that in order to promote your message and my message of human flourishing and to think differently and to use technology in ways that that promote the, the, the bringing together and the face-to-face aspect of humanity, you have to win that respect, right? You have to be a trusted voice, just like you're doing now. We're on Zoom. Screenshots from this video will go out on social platforms. People will listen to podcasts. So there's a there's a level of trust and 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 social trust that you have to build, which you could argue that is your brand, right? That is the CJ Cassiata brand. That people can go, oh, I trust him because X, Y, and Z. So that's a tension that I always struggle with. And I'm sure you've thought through it and wrestled with it. And obviously it's it's how you start your book. But could you elaborate on those tensions? 
Well, yeah, it's weird because I lead a, a messaging and production company. And so branding comes up all the time. But the the difference that we try and, and make is saying, hey, branding really throughout history, if you kind of look at the, the semiotics of it, it's always been about singeing someone else's identity onto a thing that didn't really ask to be singed, right? If you look at at the original form of, of, of branding cattle, I think the first chapter of the book is called Branding is for Cows, Belonging is for People. So you mentioned trust. Really, what creates trust, I think, in a world of very shallow personal brands is people and companies who actually do what they say. So it's one thing to to put a message out there, put a personal brand out there. It's very, very different, and I would argue more difficult to consistently over time build that trust when the screen goes down and you actually meet that person face to face. I was just talking to somebody who I I recently met and we had a, a friend in common who actually has a really pretty well known personal brand and we were both remarking about how he is genuinely who he says he is in person and we both had that we we didn't know each other very well at all we just knew this one person in common and we were like man that guy is actually who he projects in the digital you know metaverse mr rogers was a guy by all intents and purposes really was who he said he was and i think that is what we talk about when we talk about character. I think mm. that stuff takes time. I don't think you could just throw a filter on it and go, boom, now I've got a personal brand. And in the long run, that's going to, you know, that's going to make me a ton of money and, you know, give me a bunch of success. Maybe it it does for some people. It hasn't for me. In fact, the moment I started shutting down certain social profiles and letting go of that projection and I'm not saying this is a recipe for anybody, but I actually had more success financially and business-wise than I did before I was, you know, spending all this time kind of putting this image out there. Yeah. Yeah, that that's interesting because I've experienced the same thing and, and I do work in a similar industry to you. And one of the things that I always am amazed by that companies, startups, even, even large enterprise style, you know, multi-million dollar companies believe and practice something differently in the office amongst their employees and in real life than what they project or what their value statements or what their quote brand statements, mission statements are. And, And think that it doesn't matter that the customer doesn't matter. And and here's the reality is I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you could get away with that 50, 60 years ago, maybe even 25 years ago when you had much more one-to-many communication, more of a mass marketing, you know, X amount of, of television stations that you could buy time on, et cetera. But those days are over and now we have not, we don't have a one to many, but we have a two-way, three-way communication where it's brands talking to customers, customers talking back, and then customers easily talking to each other all over the world. And so maintaining, like you said, true character of, of being as a human being, soft skills, kindness, empathy, respect, those things are easily seen and not seen in the environments that we live in. And so therefore, if you're saying one thing, but your customer service is is telling me another when I'm on the phone with them, or if your website is saying one thing, but your emails are saying another, if your store representatives are saying another, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dig a little farther in that because what we're talking about is media, right? It's like the name of your book is uh, A Human Manifesto in the Age of the Metaverse. And now we're not only metaverse, but now since in the writing of the book, AI has taken over the world too, right? So 
What role do you see media technology playing in modern the modern world? Specifically, l- let's go let's go political. What me- what role do you see media technology playing in modern democracy? I- is it a force for good? Is it a force for bad? Or is it something in between? Unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, well, I argue in the book that the metaverse has really always been with us. When I my, my definition of the metaverse is sort of any extension of humanity where we sort of play out all of these human dynamics through media somehow. So sports is a metaverse for for war, right? I mean, we're just we're sort of vicariously living through these these countries with their own colors and their own flags, and we're rooting for one over the other. So the metaverse has always been with us. What we're seeing now is sort of this hyper iteration of that that metaverse in in just exponential time. So when it comes to democracy and politics, because the metaverse is sort of in the state that it isn't to your point, people are having sort of a three-way conversation and it's not just a, a mass media, you know, talking head to the public. What we're realizing is that we need to move away from sort of these archaic hero's journey type narratives, types of modalities, and enter into what Jeff Gomez calls a collective journey where we have to give, well, I say we have to, people, whether we like it or not, have agency in the collective stories that we're telling right now. So you see this in movies at the highest level and TV shows like Ted Lasso or Encanto or Only Murders in the Building, where you're starting to see more teams and collectives as the main characters altogether. You can't really point out like, oh, that's the main character and that's the main villain that they're trying to overtake. No, it's about collectives, groups of people who are banding together to overthrow a broken ideology or a broken system and reconcile people who are perpetuating that system versus saying, you're a villain, you're ba- you're you're banished, get out of here like the old Disney cartoons. Yeah. What in the great. world does that have to do with politics? Well, for a really long time, we and we still are, if you look at, you know, the, the debates that, that will happen, everybody's using this thing called the Leesburg effect, which is a messaging tool, basically says, like me because the other guy is worse, right? problem with that is there's no there's no story in that it works to a degree but there's no story in that there's no there's no collective journey there's no problem to solve this is why obama did really well because he was like hey look i have this this future that i want to see this hope everybody kind of get on board with that and stories are about what we value at the end of the day what we're willing to sacrifice for the better good and so when it comes to our politics i feel like we're all waiting for somebody who can bring in the collective versus just repeating that I'm better because that other guy is worse. Leesburg grid, what they call. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And, and I, I believe that the media that we're using, which is made up at its very core of ones and zeros placed inside of a democratic system, at least here in the U S that is binary it's 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 democrat or republican you're you're building a foundation on a binary model and you said sports teams that's a binary model so you only have one of two two choices them us win lose beat the other guy they're good we're bad there's no other dynamics at play right right and so you don't have a range of going you know, well, let's look maybe, maybe two things, maybe three things, maybe five things can be true at one time. Maybe this paradoxical thing that, that seems opposite is also true. Like there's all these spectacle, you know, different ways of looking at a diamond that sparkles beautifully, but they're all a diamond, but each way you look at it, it looks totally different. Right. So. Right. And so with sports and for example, it's still a great, a great example because like, we're, when I talk about how sports is the metaverse, we're constantly creating worlds that mirror harsher worlds that we know. And that's all fun and games until we try to just completely obliterate any form of suffering or complexity, to your point. Instead, 
Can we create stories? Can we actually sit in the complexity, in the suffering long enough to actually fix it versus eject out of it and digitize it and simulate it in some kind of metaverse? Again, whether that be uh, sports are fine and we shouldn't be going to war. That's a good example. <laughs> but but when it comes to playing games all day or hanging out on Instagram or just constantly repeating the, the Leesburg grid, you know, through uh, disinformation, start to have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about ethical considerations. So I, I think this is a good next step in this conversation. What are the ethical responsibilities we have when engaging in media technologies? Like that's the discussion that everybody, like my passion is, again, the media ecology is what effect or effects does media have on individuals and cultures? short term and long term right and how do we how do we manage that and how do we push toward ethical considerations but from your perspective what are the ethical responsibilities in a say more capitalistic society that most of silicon valley that's setting setting the standard for the technology we use what are the ethical responsibilities from your perspective when it, when not only building it but engaging it yeah i think we're we're going to need to, and this might sound very Pollyanna-ish, but I'm going for it. You know, it's like we, we're going to need to adopt a universal basic morality at some point because right. you're looking at, you're we're on the cusp of the next industrial revolution and it's going to change the way work is done, not just blue collar jobs, but white collar jobs as well. And unless we can sort of reconvene and go, hey, look, you have these beliefs, I have these beliefs, we differ on this, but together we can come up with sort of this moral baseline about the dignity of what it means to be human in a world run by big tech companies who are going to just continue to 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 obliterate the past with AI. And again, like that's not that's not a necessarily a, a bad thing. We can be Luddites, we can try and smash the machines to 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 no point whatsoever. But if we don't figure out policy around the sort of that 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 baseline of dignity, and I think we're going to have to do that every fifty to one hundred years or so. We did it a hundred years ago, one hundred twenty years ago. Now with the first industrial revolution, it's really high time we've done it again. And what what makes me nervous is I don't really see anybody on any side driving that message home in in our politics right now and that's that, that's that's what that's what makes me honestly uneasy because i think that's the conversation worth having or, or else we're just going to keep on repeating this sort of asleep at the wheel cycle that's been going on really ever since the turn of this last century yeah and, and to your point we've done it once we can do it again and yeah. we and we probably will the question is when because during the America, during the Industrial Revolution, we had obviously the abuse of children working in factories. We had people working 15, 20 hour days, right? Right. And the factory owners, the corporations, the industrialists who owned those companies did not want to change that because they got every ounce of, of sweat and work and cheap labor that they could. So they were always fighting those laws. And I think we'll see that to some degree in this in this transition, in this revolution. Thankfully, it wasn't too long until we changed child labor laws. Like you said, we all got on the same page and agreed, okay, this is our, it's not good that kids uh, are working uh, like slaves, right? We got to stop that. Let's all agree. And so that was put into place. And it really wasn't until, what was it, 30s or the 40s? That eight-hour eight-hour workdays were kind of the law and the standard, so it took some time to get there. But I think we can do it again, and I'm hopeful. And I think we're pretty resilient as humans, but we're also hopefully we can learn some things along the way. Are you encouraged in any way in some of the discussions and talks and concerns that the metaverse and and AI is bringing up? I think much of it is nonsense from the fear perspective. Sure. Many times what that extremism will do is it will bring those ethical discussions to the forefront 
so that at least they can be addressed, right? And they do need to be addressed, but you do have kind of opposite opposite extremes there. Talk more about that. Are you hopeful? Are you not so hopeful? What is your perspective on that? Well, I think when anything starts out with fear and panic, it automatically generates extremism, mm-hmm. right? And so you're absolutely right that eventually after conditions were so bad, we reformed child labor laws in the first industrial revolution. It's like how many kids have to commit suicide because they've been addicted to Instagram? Well, the data is not conclusive yet. We're in that sort of weird cycle that we tend to do. And I talk about this book in America where it, it seems really eerily similar to big tobacco in, you know, the, the, the 40s and 50s, where it's like, well, let's just wait to, or, or concussions in the NFL. Let's wait till the data is conclusive. It's good for, it's good for pregnant women to smoke. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so what will need to happen is a revolution of ordinary people, people who don't subscribe to the extremism, aren't fearful, aren't panicky, but angry, upset, and clear-headed about the fact that technology isn't going away, but we want to be in control of that technology versus it control us. That seems like a very realistic expectation, and that's only going to come from clear-headed, ordinary people. The good news is most of us are, and we make up the largest voting bloc in this country. What are we going to do to band together and actually create the change that we want to see? Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the things that I want to circle back around, I know one thing that's your passion is is traditional narratives, te- storytelling. I mentioned that you're a part, part-time puppeteer and I've seen some of your videos. <laughs> I was wondering how you're going to bring that yeah. back around. Yeah, like I think uh, it's it's really cool how you kind of tie in this more like very, very traditional, older style of communication, spe- specifically with kids into a new modern age where you can go find and see whether it's ring beller or your other things that that's more kid focused of using these traditional elements and storytelling tools whether it's on youtube or on your own channels etc but where i'm getting to is how do you see traditional narratives evolving in the digital landscape are we losing something valuable or gaining new ways of connecting what what are your thoughts on that you know, I, I honestly think we're, we're doing both. We're, there's a really great book by, you probably read it, Nicholas Carr talks about The Shallows. Mm-hmm. Or the, the book's called The Shallows. I love that book. It's, it definitely provided a bunch of inspiration for, you know, for this one coming out. And he talks about how, you know, every time you adopt a new technology, you, you, you lose something. And, you know, that's okay. But there is something about contemplation and working that sort of back half of your brain that I believe that we really, really should never lose. And it's a muscle that we should always work because it's part of what it means to be human. And so if we can create narratives and store, what we do is basically create stories that hopefully help foster that at a young age. Mm. Lots of the, like I said, you know, Reculture does media, does messaging and media production. A lot of the media production we do is with socially minded organizations, companies that want to work with kids and understand kids. And so we work with a lot of school systems and curriculum companies. And so a lot of the stuff that we develop is would be sort of under the banner of, of character development or social emotional learning. And it really is kind of kind of activating that back half of the brain to contemplate and to to think critically and to empathize with somebody that's not like you. And so sometimes the simplest, most traditional form of, of storytelling like is the best in those cases. And we try to blend, you know, both. Like obviously there there's these these puppets, but the puppets also live in this very collective journey sort of world and they're online and they're always sort of poking fun at like the latest technology. So we try and do do both. But yeah, that's 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 kind of the the line we we try and tell. That's really cool. 
One of the titles of your chapter is Wrestling Killed the Reality Star, Media oh, as, yeah. Sorry, as Kayfabe. I'd love for you to talk about that. I, when I was younger, I was a, a big wrestling fan, not so much anymore, but this idea of, of kayfabe, explain what that is, first of all, and then talk about that chapter a little bit. By the way, it'd be great if you were like still a wrestling closet. Well, I mean, you're like, not so much I do, I do, but I just can't see myself sitting down and watching it for an hour. But man, I loved it when I was younger. Your background is blurry, but on yourself, there's all these like action figures of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, exactly. And everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. <laughs> yes. Dusty Rose. <laughs> what's, what's really interesting about kayfabe, this, this concept of like the sort of wink nudge of, hey, we know that what we're doing is fake and we're playing these characters, but we've got this strategy where we're really not going to tell our audience, which is made up largely of kids in the 90s, we're not going to let them in on that secret. I think sort of giving each other that permission in the media storytelling space back in the 90s, and they weren't, you know, I'm picking on pro wrestling, but they weren't the only ones, right? You had sure. reality TV and you had Jerry Springer, which Jerry Springer is probably a, a, a fascinating story about kayfabe that I didn't put in the book, but we can talk about that if we have time because he's like, he's he kind of ropes in everything that we've been talking about when it comes to politics and kayfabe and all that kind of stuff in media, personal branding. But the the point is, is we've sort of let that strategy sink into our media and then it started sinking into our politics. Now it's starting to sink into the personal brands that we create. I think it's a really, really dangerous, dangerous delineation between imaginative storytelling. Again, I go back to Mr. Rogers, I go to Picasso, who, you know, these these guys who are like, no, we're going to make art and call it make-believe because entering into that make-believe space and knowing that, you, that you're in that make-believe space actually makes you appreciate the real world more than you would having not engaged the art problem with a lot of the media that we're seeing right now is that kayfabe is rampant again whether it's our politics whether it's our entertainment and what it does is sort of create this angst where it's like i'm not happy with the real world because i sort of want to be in here because i can't logically understand I, I, there's a trick being played in my brain where i'm like what is real and it disorients us and the sad part is is that's exactly where politicians and marketers and media machines want us yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon psychologically. I have, a, I have a little bit of a background in psychology. And and the interesting thing about kayfabe, which is basically saying, all right, wrestling has this like storyline and this imaginary world. It's kind of like in-person superheroes, comic books, right? And you don't break the storyline. So if you're out in public and you're a masked hero, like you keep your mask on, you don't let anybody see your face or if you have a certain like bad guy personality, if you're in front of the cameras or someone sees you out in public, you maintain the storyline, right? So that's kayfabe. But the interesting thing to me, and you kind of touched on this, is to this day, for the last 75 years in this country, pro wrestling packs out stadiums, right? Is people knowing that it's fake, but there's something about participating in the storyline that is exciting, right? Like, I know that when I watch a Marvel movie that Captain America is not real. I know that it's an actor. But for that hour and a half, two hours, my mind and my heart is totally immersed in this storyline that I, did, my brain and my emotions don't know necessarily if it's true or not. I allow myself to get there. And it's the same thing in person in these like wrestling or rock concerts or whatever, you like get pulled into, we're going to act out the cave fabe along with the person that's putting it on, because then all of a sudden we're participants in the cave fabe, which is like an interesting phenomenon, right? That's very meta. But, but when it comes to media, it's fascinating because it's just like professional wrestling, right? It's like after the show's over and the cameras are turned off, they turn off those personas. They may not even like each other, or they may just hang out in real life like the wrestlers do behind stage and ha all have a beer together and laugh and count their cash, right? That's an interesting phenomenon because we, like the crowd, are this audience. Like when we go to Amazon and we look at the reviews and we go, 
oh, I'm going to play kayfabe. I know that th- maybe half of these are fake, that they're paid for. Right. But I'm not going to buy the product if it has less than four stars. Right. But I also know that half of them aren't real. But I play, I'm being trained to play that game over and over and over, like you said. I think that's, an, that's a fascinating phenomenon. It really is. And we think it's just something that kids are gullible to, but the reality is, is we've, we've grown up on it. And as we're seeing right now in our climate, culturally, politically, but we know what are you going to call it? We're, we're not, we're not, what's the word? Yeah. We're not immune to kayfabe in, in, you know, adult world. Yeah. It's kind of like someone going, okay, the wrestling show's over. We're going in the car and we're going home. And meanwhile, we're going, no, it's real. I can't let, you know, my favorite wrestler, you know, whatever. I, I've got to get back and help him and I've got to fight for him. Here's a and, really good example uh, of that. I think that's a, a good point. Yes. You know, everybody's sort of in, in the same week. I remember when Harvey Weinstein got, you know, was the kind of the first big guy to get me to everybody was praising Hugh Hefner who mm-hmm. passed away that same week. And mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because you have one guy who just gets right up to the edge of objectification and probably was hosting the dude who stayed behind bars because he just crossed that line. And obviously I, I want to say on camera and, 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 you know, on audio, like, one thing is worse than the other. Like there's a, but it just goes to show that it's, it's harder than we think to make that switch in our heads when we sort of are playing out kayfabe, which I would argue was totally the Playboy Mansion. And then you go home a couple hours later and it's like, oh wait, you know, so again, not excusing what he did, not right. We should know better. Just saying like, that's not the first time that's happened. It's just, He's this most high, you know high-profile guy, and I wonder if part of the issue is that we're giving so much praise and attention to something that is kayfabe, and then the minute it crosses the real world, we cancel it mm. appropriately. So, but let's actually wind the clock back and go. What's the bigger picture here? Yeah, no, that's good. Let let's let's turn the corner on that and let's get practical. How can we maintain? I know your book talks about this and. How can we maintain our humanity in the whirlwind of of all of these technological advancements? It, it's tempting to to go luddite, right? Like smash everything, turn everything off. Which sometimes that's not a bad idea. But one of the one of the other I thought clever titles of your chapter was "In Defense of Getting Lost: Media as Gardening." Talk about that. Well, yeah, I think kind of in the same vein as personal branding we are treating this inherently iterative technology known as the internet with sort of this old school industrial 20th century printing press mentality where we write something and it's like, boom, it's out there. This is my brand. This is my message. And you start to see that in, again, politics, sort of everything kind of, kind of, blows up and amplifies, you know, from that point where you've got these very rigid points of view that can't change. And it's just so funny because it's like, guys, didn't we get past this already? Like I wrote a book in a too long, didn't read culture. That's a weird thing. Like where you can actually edit and, and go, you know what? I thought this at the time, but I now am privy to this new information or somebody in the comment section change my mind. Now I'm going to write about that. Like we have this really awesome sort of iterative, beautiful garden, like technology. And instead we're sort of trapped in 28th century sort of hero's journey. We have to be the hero of the story kind of thinking. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. You wind up your book with what you call the beatitudes of media technology. And, and I just love it. Do you mind if I read a, a, first couple of them and let's sure. kind of riff on those for a few minutes. So the first thing yeah. you say are, blessed are those who consider humanity's relationship with media as urgent a crisis as its relationship to climate, 
for they shall correct our fatal course. Blessed are those who long for a fireplace more than a jetpack, for they shall revitalize the American dream. Blessed are those who urge media to bend toward democracy, for they shall prevent the opposite. Great, great stuff. What what was the what was the inspiration? Obviously, in in the Bible and the book of Matthew, Jesus has the Beatitudes. But talk about kind of what you're trying to communicate here, because I think it's it's profound. It's prompting to to use a, a McLuhan esque word, but but specifically that first one there. Blessed are those who consider humanity's relationship with media as urgent a crisis as its relationship to climate, for they shall correct our fatal course. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that our relationship with media is as urgent a crisis as the relationship to climate? I absolutely do. I think that's like the, if there's one takeaway from this book, I hope people realize that point because it's different than big tobacco. It's different than the concussion stuff. It's different than, it's it's just as important as climate because the way we transmit information and communicate with each other literally affects everything. So we can't get a better grasp, a better hold on that. We are screwed. Mm. Nobody's talking. I mean, people are starting to talk about it, but nobody's talking about it with the same urgency as climate change. And I think they're equally important. That's great. So what are some actionable insights? So you and I find ourselves in this interesting, sometimes conundrum where we're working in media, we're pro-media, but we're also, again, taking the perspective of we want to we want to call out and raise the warning flags. We want to push towards better ways of being. We want to have ethical standards in media, but we're not anti-media. So, what is the practical advice? Specifically, let's say parents. I, I know I believe you have kids, right? I have kids. What what do we do? Like, what do we do raising kids in an environment where it's it's second nature? It's it's like putting on a shirt to put your iPhone in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah, I think for us, that's been a really, really challenging, not not challenging for us to talk about with our kids, but it's, it's challenging to talk to other parents about it because everybody's trying to figure this out and everybody, it's almost like talking about religion or politics at, at Thanksgiving, right? It's like, you know, everybody's got their own sort of way of looking at this. For us, one of the things, we have younger kids and we have a, a one who is like just sort of on this cusp of tween you know, tweenism. And so she's really starting to ask for, you know, more technology. And so a couple of practical things there. We've really liked the Gab Watch. I'm not like endorsed by them or that anything, but or spot, you know, sponsored, but I just really think they're an interesting company because they're, it, it's, it, they're creating technology that is very useful for the, it's very age appropriate. So there's no social media on it, you know, People can't text my kids images or anything like that, but we can get a hold of our kid, send her to the park alone and go sort of be a, a free range kid because we want that. We don't want to be these like, you know, hovering, you know, hypersensitive parents, but we can get a hold of them. So, so that's, that's one thing. Another practical thing that's worked for us is for every no, we've tried to pair it with a yes. Hmm. And so for every like, no, <laughs> you can't download TikTok, but yes, why don't you invite your your best friend who you want to TikTok with over for dinner and, you know, they can sleep over as well. Like just blow their minds with like, oh, I can't believe they get to do that. Because I think sometimes we can get in this routine of like, no, 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 we don't want you to do this. And so making sure that, that we balance that out by just kind of making their day in a way that brings them back to the beauty and, and mystery and all those good things that we like about real life, going to a park, having a sleepover, sharing a meal, we really try to encourage that too. Yeah, that's great. That's great. What are you hoping people uh, get from your book, CJ? I mean, there's so many books out right now talking about, you know, the pros and cons of media and different perspectives on media and futurism and all of that. What What are you hoping that people get uniquely from your book? Yeah, I think... I want, I wrote it so that people would have some better language to mm -hmm. begin changing the conversation around this. So I feel like everybody's talking about this stuff at dinner parties, at the water cooler, at 
first of all, do people have dinner parties to go to water coolers anymore? What are the proverbial, you know, on Zoom calls in co-working sessions, you know, whatever it is, but uh, people are talking about this. That, that's, that's the point. And I feel like the conversations always end up with like, yeah, man, that, oh no, we're all screwed. Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and so I think even just being able to call out the kayfabe when you see it, to be able to say, you know, this kind of goes back to big tobacco or, you know, what if we kind of had a gardening mindset the next time we post something, giving people little handholds in each chapter to be able to grab onto next time they have a conversation that feels like the metaverse and AI is taking over. No, we can actually do something about this. Mm. And the other thing too is hopefully we can start to bake in the, that language and those ideas into the way we talk to our Congress people, our, our local government, our federal government, and begin to vote with the future in mind in the same way that people have voted in hopes of practically curbing climate change. Because again, I think it's just a serious. Yeah, that's great. What What's next on your agenda? I mean, any upcoming projects that delve deeper into this? Or do you have plans that when the book comes out over the next year, you want to do what is it, speaking events, or do you have, uh, knowing you, you're very creative. So what's your, what's the project is, that the books is probably like, okay, this is a, this is the first brick in, in what I'm building here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of the media production stuff that we've been talking about before with schools and when stuff that's been taking up most of this year, but I'm excited to facilitate some conversations with teams, with companies, with, we're doing a couple of things at little independent bookstores, really gathering people together who care about this or just curious about this, and then sort of hacking some solutions collaboratively that were mm. in the context of that community. Because again, there's not going to be a one size fits all. My, you know, every no to a yes, point out the kayfabe, the smart watch thing, the gab watch, like that's working for our family, but that's not necessarily going to work for your family. And so what I'm currently working on, kind of starting to, to to book, is a couple of different little gatherings, again, in partnership with companies, organizations, in a couple of different regions in the country where we get together and we sort of figure out, okay, what do the solutions look like for this team, for this community? Mm. I think that's the way we're going to start to see little, ho- little, little drips of change. And I love that because what it does is it begins to individualize a little bit more and focus on your immediate community versus this like huge kayfabe collective that yeah. that it's easy to get sucked into, right? Because yeah. like I read an article the other day, there was this little town in Ireland. I don't know if you saw it, but it was like they outlawed or didn't permit. I don't know how legal it was, but no kids had cell phones. Huh. And 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 the 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 gist of the article was like how it was transforming the community, meaning like parents and kids were doing things and kids were playing outside more, and it was just wow. like this transformative. And I had reposted it, and I said, you know, obviously this is not a one size fits all, but but it's interesting in certain cultures. What do you think about it? And I got a, a wide range of response. You know, people said, oh, this is amazing. I wish we would do it here. Someone else like, I could never do this. I'm a single mom and I bought my kid a phone so that I could be connected with her while I'm at work. I work late and it, it's a it's a lifeline to me and her. So there's just all this interesting, like unique situations. But I love the the aspect of, okay, what what is good for our little community or our group of people or our space in the world? Because mm-hmm. large urban environments, New York City, Brooklyn, has different needs and cultures and mores and things happening, say, than a much more suburban Midwestern environment. It's, it's That's just the reality. It's just the oh, way gosh. we live and work and, and, and our grounding is different. And, and and to your point, I, I touch on this in the book, this is why media touches everything. Why is it that a single mom in an urban environment needs their kid to have a phone? Why are we not asking that question? There is, there is an answer. It's in the book, but it affects everything. And it's a, it's a complete spiral that if we can 
get a hold of how we deal with media technology, we might just be on the path to solving bigger, more systemic problems. Yeah. And the opposite, unfortunately, is true as well. If we don't, we're going to be just in another layer of the cycle in 20, 25 years where our kids are going to grow up and be like, oh man, that was a really, really privileged sort of thing that, you know, I got to not be on social media. I got to not use a phone and so-and-so uh, who, you know, didn't have that leg up had to do that. And we're going to have to deal with the ramifications of that. So both can happen, but I'm hopeful. I really am. Yeah, I am hopeful too. And much like, again, to borrow the colloquialism, the the media is the message. I also <laughs> have kind of formed my own version of that. And I say, you know, the medium is the mirror. <laughs> it really does mirror who we are and who we are becoming. But we don't have to keep going down those roads and we don't have to keep making those reflections because as as, as you point out in your book, and I'm so grateful that, that you've written it, there are ways that we can tie into traditional narratives and ways of connecting with people in weird, in, in not weird, in, in healthy spaces together again. And we can use the technology to facilitate and enhance rather than detract from that. So yeah. any, any final thoughts or messages you'd like to share with my, my listeners? Gosh, I feel like this has been such a, a life-giving conversation for me. It's wonderful that you're already thinking this way and have done a lot of work and writing in this space. And so it's just really fun to be able to have a conversation with somebody who gets the, the, the heartbeat of this message. It's a special thing. So thanks for, thanks for sharing your platform and, and, you know, the stuff that you built with, with, with me. Yeah, absolutely. CJ, if people want to get in touch with you, follow you, want to know more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Obviously the book. Yeah. And, and you get the book, you can learn more about some of the stuff that I'm doing. You can learn about Reculture, which is the studio, the creative studio that, um, that I own. It's, you can go to cjcast.com. So that's cjcas.com. Awesome. Well, CJ, again, thank you for the book. Appreciate your work and hope to have you on again. I'm hoping that the book will do fantastic and maybe we can contribute a little bit to the sales. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Until next time. Cool. Bye.